Hi, everyone. Welcome to our first episode of our podcast. I'm Giovanni Bacelli, your host. And I'm Cecilia Martinez, your co-host. And we are here to talk about representation in the media. And that goes not just for television and movies, but we're going from those two to games and books and music, pretty much everything that would be considered media because, as we all know, there's a lot of media out there. There's a lot of representation that's not being covered or a lot of media that has more representation of others or different types of representation. And we thought it'd be best to cover all those bases. Uh, and we thought the best way to do that would be through a podcast since I have all the equipment needed. So <laughs> might as well just dive into it. And we're huge nerds. So we'll get to nerd out over different media. The amount of years I've spent as a geek are immeasurable <laughs> and i'm finally gonna get to just splurge over everything like what was it the someone said their greatest birthday gift would be locking someone in locking many people in a room and just talking about game of thrones so that's exactly what's happening here except on a large scale form and through your directly to your ears so a little bit about myself and cecilia i wanted to say me personally i've always loved star wars and that's been like my media since i was four years old to the point where i would resist things in case in the fact that they weren't star wars and i was just gorge myself over star wars constantly and as i grew up i got more into fantasy and other forms of media especially in terms of video games and books recently in the quarantine i've spent hours reading folktale books and mythology and a book that I hope to actually cover on a podcast, Children of Blood and Bone, which is an amazing African, young adult African mythology, kind of African fantasy novel. And along with that, also playing video games, Fire Emblem, Animal Crossing, Ghost of Tsushima, which is, just came out and I've adored so far. During quarantine, I've been really into Animal Crossing, Fire Emblem. I've been catching up on a lot of animes. I saw Beastars. <laughs> I saw Hunter Hunter, Carol and Tuesday. Other media I'm looking forward to, Umbrella Academy Season 2. Yeah. And to go on, I think I maybe we'll cover Beastars. It's got some... <laughs> furry representation or animal representation so we'll see about that that's to be determined though but yeah we decided that today we'd want to talk about a show that has been very important piece in our lives one for me has re-entered my life and another that just entered yours and that would be avatar the last airbender which a lot of people know returned on netflix and basically swept the nation of the quarantine realm and re-entered everyone's hearts or and entered a lot of people's news hearts and we thought that it'd be very timely to talk about that yeah so avatar shot up to the number one spot on netflix us within its first week of being released on netflix and that's a show that has been off well started 12 years ago and has been off the air for like about 10 9 years and it just right back on the number one spot that's insane it's amazing yeah after 12 years it shows how strong this fan base is who just as soon as it came back on they all rewatched it and it spoke to a lot of people new fans who jumped on it too and really fell in love with it because i mean 
how else would a show that aired 12 years ago reach number one if it didn't touch the hearts of so many people? Yeah, and the impact it's had now in 2020 during quarantine, everyone's binging, everybody's creating memes, every TikTok, there's an <laughs> Avatar The Last Airbender reference. And it just really speaks, I feel like the show just speaks to a lot of people because of its diversity in the show and how relatable it is today and how ahead of its time I think it was too when it got released and as you once told me it's really it is an extremely timeless show that works whenever you want to watch it yeah there's something in it for everybody you have a bit of comedy action of course mythology there's so much world building which we'll get into and romance you have everything yeah every little bit and yeah i guess uh background on how we got into the show i started watching the show when it came out in 2005 that was when i was around eight years old uh, and i watched it i watched it a lot but i didn't like sit for week like watch it week by week basis because i didn't really understand how that worked at that age and it's not like we had the I had internet access at the time to know when each episode was airing, so I kind of just waited for a new episode to come out. But I was there for all the big hits. Like I uh, remember vividly watching when Toph created metal bending, when Zuko swapped over sides. Also, spoiler alert, I should say. <laughs> but major spoilers. Major for spoilers. This but it is it is twelve years after it aired, and it's been it it's been. Yeah, Netflix for at least two months during quarantine. So if you haven't watched it, go watch it. Go watch it. You don't have an excuse for listening to this having not watched it. But yeah, that's just background on me. I rewatched the show twice. Uh, once a couple years after when I entered high school, it was on Netflix, and then they took it off. And I bought the Blu-ray about last year, and I rewatched the entire series. And so I've had a couple run-throughs of the show. Oh God. <laughs> um, my background with avatar is non-existent (laughs) i remember it coming on on nickelodeon and i just don't know why i would stick around and watch some episodes but i don't know it's weird because i watched a lot of tv when i was young i've seen like every spongebob episode but i don't know why just avatar i guess i just wouldn't be on the tv when avatar was on i just The only thing I remember from back then when I was about eight or nine was Zuko's character design transformation. His hairstyle, you mean? I'm like, oh no, he's hot. (laughs) That's my background. What else do I remember? I remember I must have been in ninth grade or eighth grade when the live action came out. (laughs) My best friend at the time invited me and she was so hyped. She had grown up with Avatar, meant so much to her, and I felt like fake because I did not remember much of what had happened other than bending. How could you forget bending? And we went to the movie theaters together to watch it, and the whole time I was sitting there, and I'm seeing Jackson Rathbone as Sokka, I'm like, I could have sworn they were brown. (laughs) Like, what is going on here? And that's what I remember. I remember seeing Katara and Sokka, white as hell, white as the snow, and falling asleep during the movie. (sighs) So that's my background with Avatar. Um, Another tangent I can go on (laughs) before we get into the meat of the podcast 
is Dante Basco coming to my university to give a speech and my roommate inviting me she was so hype I'm here yeah so that proves like all ages timeless show like I was 13 when the live action came out and people were hype and disappointed and then I was around 18 when Dante Basco came to speak at UCLA and everybody was so hype trying to get into his speech and I didn't end up going because I felt like a fake because <laughs> I had rarely watched Avatar and then Gio over here got it on Blu-ray and I just never had the time to sit down and watch it until it came out on Netflix so I guess it being on Netflix proves like the demand for Avatar was there just we needed the accessibility to it and everybody loves binge culture now Yes, everyone loves binge culture, and the show is definitely binge-worthy. It's like such a... This show was made for Netflix. Like, the amount... How quick you can go through the episodes, how short the season... Well, not the short... The seasons aren't short, but the fact that there's only three seasons. It's so streamlined and just easy to watch. And like we said, for all ages, which is why it's just so timeless but uh, as much as i'd love to talk about how timeless the show is and that be the podcast just a whole series about how the show is is just perfect we wanted to talk about the representation in this show because it is very prevalent and is very obvious the people being represented in the show the women being represented in the show and the culture that's being represented in the show and we found that's very like we said, very relevant to today and important for when we were kids because it was important because not many shows at the time had the same, was at the same level of representation and diversity as Avatar. Not even, for some shows, not even close. So as we were saying, a big part of the show is that it really, it represented different cultures than a lot of kids were used to. A lot of kids kind of grow up with a European fantasy, so to speak. It's true. And Harry Potter. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, even Narnia, which was out around that oh, time. Yeah. The, all that fantasy was surrounded by European culture. A little bit of, yeah, no, just pure European culture. And this was a show that came out that surrounded a lot of Asian culture, which at the time, uh, there were shows coming out around the same premise, so to speak. I think this was also because anime had been becoming really big around the 1990s to the early 2000s with Dragon Ball, Naruto. Yeah, coming to the U.S. and yeah. Latin America. And that around the same time, we had shows like Jake Long, American Dragon, that show I can never remember with the Shaolin Showdown. Shaolin Showdown thank mm-hmm. you. But even those shows had an American twist on it, while Avatar, which still had like American-style writing it was still very immersed in Asian culture and Asian mythology in a certain sense, or yeah. fantasy, more appropriately speaking. And it's focusing primarily on Chinese, Japanese, and Native American. Native American culture. That, yeah, like that's something that hadn't been done and still hasn't really been done since. Uh, aside, if you want to talk about Legend of Korra, which is still yeah. in the same universe... <laughs> same creators everything and this show really gave kids a perspective into different types of martial arts which is really big and martial arts that aren't just like 
freaking Jackie Chan's karate. It was karate kid. karate kid or anything like that. It was more like Tai Chi, which is what the waterbenders did. And a bit of Kung Fu, which was seen with the firebenders. But it was done in, in the form of an art, too. Because the way they bend was an art form. And that they bring up consistently throughout the show, especially with even in Korra, too, with the pro bending tournaments. They talk about how that's like ruining the art form of bending and how it's like making a mockery of it. And then Korra says, like, oh, no, this is modern type, which is a whole different thing. But yeah, we were introduced to that as a ki- as children, and that's important because we got to see just a different type of the world where it's not about doing kicks and flips and all that. It's actually seeing the motions of these types of martial arts that have been created through generations in Chinese and Japanese cultures. Yeah, and characters like Iroh really highlight that it's not all about action and defeating your opponent like a lot of u.s media tries to portray martial arts a lot of self-defense which it can be used for but it's not just a physical activity but it's also good for mental health developing patience yeah which is like martial arts was a tool for all that for people and it still is used that way and it was it's it's interesting to know that as children we were introduced to that form of martial arts and seeing martial arts as that. But yeah, that being the point of being in, that's just one part that we were introduced with was martial arts. And that's not just talking that's that's ignoring the fact of how the architectures and the art design and that everything was all based off Chinese and Japanese cultures. And uh, even the air temples were based off, like, Southeast Asian Buddhist architecture. There's also not just that, but as we mentioned earlier, indigenous cultures as well, with the northern southern water tribes and then the sun warriors being based off Aztecs. Aztec and Mayan culture. It's just like a general Mesoamerican culture that they were basing them off. Yeah. Since they were cultures who worshipped sun deities. And again, not many shows portrayed that, except unless you want to count Cusco's New Groove or the Emperor's New Groove, which had Inca, although they freaking hired David Spade to be Cusco. But yeah, that'd be that's like the closest comparison to showing indigenous culture was with the Inca culture and Emperor's New Groove. And even then, it was just a world set in that culture, but in Avatar the themes go deeper than that like in that firebending sun warriors episode where zuko and Aang go to the island and then the elders are telling them of the history and the meaning of firebending and how basically the fire nation twisted the art of firebending whereas the sun warriors are trying to preserve their history and preserve the last dragons so those are deep themes for a kid's show. Yeah, extremely. And ones that are really in, entrenched into modern culture and how we view older culture. Like specifically, there's a lot of a lot of nations in the past have like looked at their former past and try to and try to like outdo it. Out outdo it or like bring it back but in more of a twisted way, as you said with the firebenders. Like in the Second World War both Italy and Japan wanted to go back to their former roots 
of being like strong warriors and like world leaders which is like what made them go to joining the axis powers and doing that because like Mussolini would talk about oh how Italy was the Roman Empire and they wanted to go back to that and they twisted it becoming like yeah 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 and Avatar has similar themes of authoritarianism with Mm -hmm. the Fire Nation and the cult of personality in the form of the Fire Lord yeah basically the education system in the Fire Nation is really twisted there's a lot of propaganda I think the best way that that's really portrayed with the cult of personality and with totalitarianism is with the daily and then seeing the firebender uh, the fire nation twist the airbenders history because they were wiped out which is unfortunately a big part of indigenous cultures too which is unfortunately genocide and having their culture wiped out and altercated and then facing facts like ang being the last airbender while it makes for like a good show title and makes for a good premise of the show, it hits really hard for kids because they see that and then they realize later that, oh my gosh, this was real. This has happened to cultures before. So it's like a, an interesting introduction to that world, to the real world. Mm. And I think that's where the show thrives in is was introducing American children and children from other world. Uh, from other countries as well because this wasn't only aired in the u.s but to different cultures and different nationalities and different backgrounds and religions and everything yeah i agree even with the representation of southeast asian cultures and not just east asian cultures because you rarely saw that in the media in american media like they shun a light on southeast asian culture and they were the first to do it kids media i would say because i can't think of like a disney movie or a dreamworks movie that centers around southeast asian cultures and getting into colorism and how they actually portray dark-skinned asians which there are dark-skinned asian people in the show and in our world which is exactly true where like you said there's no disney movies that show indian culture or anything south southeast asian there's very little that even like the only thing i can think of that showed portrayed asian culture was mulan and Mm -hmm. that was that was it like there was just it was just about uh feudal china and seeing a bit about their culture and they didn't even dive too deep into that. It was just like that was the only introduction children really had. Honoring the ancestors and respecting tradition. Those were the main themes. Yeah. And Avatar really explored not just like Chinese culture, but like you said, Southeast, Southeast Asian. I can't say. I yeah. Can't say that. Yeah, because growing up, like I remember Mulan and like you said, like Shaolin Showdown and... Um, Samurai Jack. Samurai Jack, even, too. I forgot about Samurai Jack. What was the other one? Jake Long. American Dragon Jake Long. And those were all very heavily influenced by East Asian cultures. And I can't think of a show. Even, like, on PBS, which they had Sagwa, <laughs> which was a Chinese, Chinese Siamese cat. That was the title. But I can't remember a single show like, like, on Southeast Asian culture like Avatar does. And it's not just taking the aesthetic of 
a monastic culture, but they actually translate the spiritual teachings of like Tibetan monks into the show through the air nomad culture. Yeah, and I mean everywhere it's just you're completely immersed into this and there's no break away from that. Even in shows like Samurai Jack and Jake Long American Dragon, both of those I mean Samurai Jack was like you're it was just a samurai that got thrusted into the future. And like the only East Asian was just knowing that he was a samurai. And then American uh, American Dragon, you saw a bit of Chinese American culture, which is also interesting because you get to get that perspective. But we didn't see anything that was completely just immersed in so many different Asian cultures. Yeah. And that's something that, I mean, even growing up, a lot of people have to appreciate. And seeing that now is really, it's something to think about because we still don't really have another show that immerses you that much into so many different asian cultures we're yeah. still mm-hmm. a lot of it still goes back to european culture yeah and even normalizing darker skinned or more tan asian people because a lot of people there's a lot of colorism in asia yeah so because of that there's not a lot of dark skin representation in Asian-inspired media, but that's not the case in Avatar. Yeah, and I think that's a good transition into talking about people of color because I think that the show really has a good amount of representation of people of color, especially with Katara and Sokka and how they're represented in the show. Yeah, they're leads. They're not really sidekicks. They're very active. Sokka's the planner and Katara's like very action-oriented. And she helps drive the story along. Yeah, they're very active characters, which is something that not a lot of shows have, which are lead characters that are like they, they a lot of shows at the time and now don't really have people of color that are lead characters. I mean, there's more nowadays. I can point to a couple, but there's not too many. And these are like big examples of lead characters who are brown and are extremely active where like Katara is almost a mentor to you know she is an actual mentor to Aang and Sokka while he's a comedic relief he's also uh, very intelligent and a leader yeah, through and like through the tactician yeah I feel like a lot of shows too where they have uh, a person of color they are often put to the side or seen as comedic relief and these two characters while Sokka is funny and he is a comedic relief he's much more than just that he has even I know people like to say he doesn't have an arc but he still has a significant arc and he still has a lot of development and that's not just with Sokka's master which is his big episode but throughout like seeing his trauma losing Yuki Yue I've combined Yuki and Suki. And Yue and Suki. <laughs> but yeah, seeing his trauma losing Yue and then seeing how that relates to having Suki. And then seeing him deal with, you know, being a non bender in a world of benders yeah. too. And also his he becomes which we'll talk about later, but his development from becoming like a misogynist to a feminist at the end of the show. There's a big thing. Definitely. That's something a lot of people get can look up to, too. Like, especially children, they can look up to these two characters who are super active, who are people of color, and come from indigenous background, too, in terms of, like, their style and their culturals. 
because Southern Water Tribe is based off the um, yeah, based off the Inuit people. And again, for one, people get to peer into that realm too, and seeing that culture. The representation in Avatar doesn't end with Katara and Sokka because Avatar is set in a fictional Asiatic world, so the amount of people of color in this world it's abundant and i think the most prominent of those would be ang who comes from the air nomads which is inspired off tibetan cultures and uh buddhist culture and then zuko and iroh who come from the fire nation and which is inspired off japanese culture and you see that in their attire in the way they act well more so ang how he acts spiritually especially when he meets his guru who is Southeast Asian, and you, they start talking about the chakras and everything. And then Zuko and Iroh, obviously with their attire and their background, is very inspired off Japanese culture. And especially like things like how they treat their hair, their dealings with honor and everything, especially Zuko, which all he wants is to get back his honor, which is something a lot that's covered a lot, especially with like the samurai in the Edo period of Japan. Yeah. And then, of course, across the board, we see a lot of different characters. Toph and the Earthbenders are based off Chinese cultures and aesthetic. And we see that, again, with Bossing Se's architecture and even, like, how Toph dresses when she's supposed to look fancy, when she's, you know, just brawling as the blind bandit. And as you've told me before, is that they're not all supposed to be there's no one way to draw these characters and there's no way to interpret these characters. Definitely. And that's shown because what were you saying? You told you were telling me about Aang and the live action, their argument there. Yeah. So they were justifying that Aang being portrayed by a white actor or a non-Asian actor makes sense because Aang in the show is lighter skinned and has rounder eyes and bigger eyes and i'm assuming the people who are defending the casting choice are white americans i know i shouldn't assume but i'm just assuming they're white americans which goes to show how asian people have been portrayed in american media for so long that they have that americans non-asian americans have this perception of a stereotypical Asian person and anything outside that stereotype is defaulted to white. And this show really shows otherwise, which is that everyone like they're not there's not one way to draw an Asian character. There's not one way to draw a brown character. There's mm-hmm. not one way to draw a black character, which I want to discuss in Carol and Tuesday how they draw black characters considering how traditionally black characters drawn in anime. But that's a different topic entirely. But with Avatar, we really see everyone drawn differently. And I think that's something, especially as I'm sure with Asian children watching the show, that's something to admire and look up to because I'm there's so many shows where Asian characters are drawn very similar. Or there is only a set of Asian characters in a show and there's no other Asian characters outside that like small group. And I'm thinking of American Dragon too, which had Asian characters. But outside, like, Jake Long, his sister, and his grandfather, there wasn't many Asian characters. Uh, So you had very few people to look at in terms of how they were drawn. And they were drawn, 
I don't want to say like stereotypically, but kind of typically how a lot of people draw Asian characters. So this is a show where now we see people drawn very differently. And like you said, people kind of defaulted that as, oh, now he's white because he's not drawn like that, which is not the truth considering their background and everything. And it all circles back to colorism, how the poster models for anywhere around the world are always light-skinned. It doesn't have to be, we don't have to be talking about Asian. We could be talking about Latin America Mm -hmm. or anywhere exactly and how people constantly like look for an excuse to whitewash too how you said ang wasn't drawn asian so he's white which is yeah not true or at least not fair because they now you're saying like oh asian people can only be drawn a certain way to be asian which limits people artistically immensely and limits people in terms of uh creating like asiatic worlds it limits them as well which shows, again, how much this show meant to people of color and people of different backgrounds because they constantly get to see this show breaking different boundaries and breaking different norms of how things should be. Yeah. And we see that continued in Korra, too, when looking at Aang's children and even Toph's children. Yeah. And, again, it's just I can't stop thinking about how that impact the show has had on so many people. I think that with seeing that show along with others has helped move us as a generation to want more diversity because we saw shows that are incredibly good with a lot of diversity. And then there's people still trying to hold back, worrying that diversity will hold them down when that simply isn't the case. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing it more and more to the point where that we have a we're making a podcast that there's so many more forms of diversity in shows that we're gonna have a whole discussion about an immense amount and we've been talking about ang a lot so i'm sorry if we're focusing on ang so much but another point i wanted to hit on was when i was a kid obviously i wasn't as invested in avatar as other people may have been but i would casually watch and i would see zuko's hair and to me, growing up as a Latina kid, seeing that hair was other to me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't used to seeing that in kids' cartoons. And then, you know, when I got older, I started watching Akira Kurosawa films, seeing similar hairstyles to Zuko's, season one Zuko, mm-hmm. and just thinking about how historically accurate Avatar is and how they're not afraid to play around with the character designs to make them historically accurate and they don't care about what's going to appeal to American audiences. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, to me, as a child, obviously, I didn't know what I know now. So to me, it just was strange to me. That was a hairstyle that I wasn't used to seeing on in kids' cartoons. But it was a good choice they made. I, I can't not believe that the creators of the show didn't consciously make these decisions to start normalizing this yeah and start normalizing this type of fantasy as well yeah which again we haven't seen a show like this but we've seen movements of diversity because of the generation that grew up with this yeah and i'm not saying that avatar is the sole reason why we have like black panther (laughs) but i'm saying that this show has pushed boundaries to start making to start pushing creators to think outside 
like a European box or an American box. Yeah, and they try to bring that diversity while appealing to kids. Like yeah. when Aang is when Aang gets injured and as he a result up. he grows his hair mm-hmm. out and he's desperately trying to shave his head off and there's this line he says where he proudly wants to wear his arrow. Yeah. And that it goes to show you that these styles aren't just an aesthetic choice, but a cultural choice. Yeah. And they have purpose. Yeah, exactly. And even, again, pointing to hair with Zuko and Iroh after season one, when they kind of just decide to leave the Fire Nation, they cut their hair, which is very symbolic, especially given um japanese tradition at least like older tradition of how cutting hair was like a symbolism of you leaving something behind or like moving your like not losing your honor but kind of going in that direction and that's seen in samurai movies as well like lone wolf and cub they cut their top knots off because they're no longer samurai and he becomes a ronin after that point which is kind of in a certain sense is what Zuko kind of becomes, even though the Fire Nation isn't inspired off Edo Japan, it's more Imperial Japan. I think that I would still consider Zuko a Ronin, especially in episodes like Zuko Alone. How he's just kind of like a wandering warrior, like a wandering samurai. Yeah. And with all that about people of color representation, there's a lot of female representation in the show as well. And at certain points, there's it's almost the cast of female characters to the ratio to female characters to male characters is almost equal if not skewed in the females favor because we have in the in team avatar we have katara toph ang and sokka and then when we get zuko we get suki so it evens out an entire time and then on the opposite end we have azula may and Ty lee who are all and yeah. I, yeah like, and I like that they subverted that in season one. The big baddie was supposed to be Zhao, and then obviously by Zhao, end of season <laughs> one. And then you have these teenage girls who are forced to be reckoned with. Yeah. Which is amazing because media doesn't really take teenage girls seriously. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they're, yeah. especially Zula, is incredibly effective yeah. as well as she's intimidating too. Yeah. And I'm going to backtrack a little bit and start talking about Katara because Katara is our main girl. Yeah. And in the first season, she's like, it's very plain to see that she is fighting misogyny in like plain and obvious, which is probably a conscious decision made by the creators to show girls watching the show like, hey, like stand up to punks and don't listen to men who are trying to put you down. And it's two key parts. One part I was pointed out to me as a meme, and I thought it was funny, but I countered it, was uh, someone said that if it wasn't for misogyny, Aang would have never fulfilled his destiny becoming an avatar because when they get lost and trapped, Sokka's like, I'll leave it to a girl to screw things up. And then she gets mad and uses her water band. Yeah, breaks the ice. But I said, I commented when I saw that, I said, actually, if it wasn't for katara standing up against misogyny yeah that it wouldn't have worked out because if she had been complicit and said you're right yeah, girls are stupid home. let's go home they wouldn't have had ang but instead she was like Yo, pretty much yeah screw you yeah. i gotta do all this stuff i gotta take care of you i was gonna say profanity but hey <laughs> we're gonna stay away from that right now 
but Katara basically says like screw you I'm gonna I'm not taking this and then she uses her waterbending powers and releases Aang which gives us our avatar yeah and then later on we have Sokka facing the Kyoshi warriors and the introduction to avatar Kyoshi too who is by no means a stereotypical woman she's a hardcore baddie which people have very funny made her like kind of a murderous <laughs> avatar <laughs> She's the Chuck Norris of Avatar. Yeah, she's the Chuck Norris of Avatar. Oh my god, living up until like 250 years old and being like 7 feet tall or whatever, how however tall this Her woman was. giant foot. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, yeah, we introduced to the, the Kyoshi Warriors who Sokka kind of just writes off. Even in the beginning, he says when they get captured, they're like, oh, where's the men that captured us? And they're like, we are the yeah. women that captured you. Yeah. And then that's where his development from become a misogynist to feminist becomes. Mm-hmm. And then obviously at the end of the season, when Katara faced off Paku, yeah. who refuses to teach her and wants her to stay in her place as a healer instead of a warrior. And then she shows him up. They also have a discussion about arranged marriages too, which is like a small thing, but oh yeah, is important when he says Katara's grandmother didn't want to marry him. And they were supposed to, but then she like dipped on him. Yeah. And I would argue that Katara is the whole reason the story move, moves along. It's yeah. not because Aang realized, oh, like, Aang still thinks he's in the past If at the beginning of the show. Katara's the one who tells him about the Hundred Year War, and that's what drives Aang to seek out the rest of his training so he can fulfill his duty as Avatar. And Katara isn't just along for the ride because she wants to tag along with Aang just to, I don't know, just play a hero yeah. sidekick. She wants to go with him so she can learn waterbending and protect her tribe. She's the last waterbender. Yeah, and she wants to protect her culture, too, and have her culture live on through herself. And we even see her being very active from the very beginning because she is the one that wants to help Aang, even when her tribe tells her no. Yeah. And then it's she's the first one, and Sokka tags along. And then later on, Katara's often described as like being motherly, but that's also it's her... It's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing, because she's not just being a mom. She's not like playing in a maternity role. She's playing in the role of a leader that's trying to take care of her people. And that's something also admirable about the show, which I don't want to dive into too much, because we'll get sidetracked, but Avatar Gang doesn't really have a leader they're all like working together as a single unit yeah and that's where you see like where Sokka can thrive where Katara could thrive where Aang Zuko Toph they all thrive in their own ways and lead in their own ways and Katara leads by pushing people to do what they need to do but Katara is, is not like you said isn't a sidekick she's not on the sideline she's an extremely active character and an active pusher of the story itself if it wasn't for katara we ang would probably still be playing with what is it penguin otters penguin sledding sledding. yeah yeah we see that it thoroughly through the show constantly where she's moving the story or she's helping move the story and then we get to like seeing katara and literally fighting misogyny and we see that not so much as literal we see more implicit misogyny as we move on Especially, I like to point out with Toph, 
how I know her family's very protective of her because she's blind, but they point out that she is a blind girl. And I think that's important because I don't know if they would be that strict with her if she was a blind boy. And I think that maybe at the very least they'd push her to become more... If she was a boy... They'd continue her bending practice yeah. outside of just simple techniques. Simple techniques, yeah. Or at the very least they'd like maybe even be proud to have a blind bending son yeah. over a blind bending daughter. defend himself versus yeah. a girl who they assume cannot defend herself. Yes, exactly. And I think that's where that more implicit misogyny is. And we don't really touch upon that. We don't hear her parents say, like, oh, if you were a boy, it'd be different. But mm -hmm. I think that they didn't need to because I think that's already there. Yeah, I agree. And then we get our badass queen, Azula, yeah. who is just a force to be reckoned with through and through. From the very beginning, we know that she is not like Zuko. She's not like Zhao. Zhao? Zhao. Yeah. <laughs> who cares? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Azula is the real. Girl. Yeah, Azula comes in. She's a real antagonist. She, I would say. Yeah. Ozai's. Oh, not even Ozai. I mean, the, Ozai is like basically our Darth Sidious, and Azula yeah. is Darth Vader, which is so true because Vader isn't really kind of Vader. He's not as intimidating until Empire Strikes Back when he gets shit, starts getting shit done, and that's Azula. I said I wouldn't use profanity, but here I am. Here we go. But Azula is a complete. I mean, she's extremely effective. She's dangerously effective to the point where she runs the Team Avatar ragged at and a certain point. She fostered a whole coup. Yeah, she fostered it. On, someone pointed <laughs> this out, and I thought it was so true, but Azula, on her side mission, this is a side quest she did. Yeah, she's, to capture her uncle. Yeah, her, to, real her real mission was to capture her uncle and her brother. And bring them back to the Fire Nation. And she thought, well, wow, I'm here. Let me go overthrow Bossing Say. A city for we couldn't take over for a hundred years, and let me also assassinate the Avatar. I think the important part about Azula is that she just does it, and she's not ever hindered about any of her abilities because she was she was born to be, she was grown up to be perfect, and that's like a whole yeah. situation later that develops with her. But also, I it's interesting to see how effective and strong this female antagonist is because we don't really see a lead female antagonist of her caliber. Like, there's very few examples. I could think... Especially not in kids' media. Yeah. Where she's so ruthless and violent. Yeah. I think, like, the closest we can get now would be Hela and Thor Ragnarok. And even then, she's not as... I don't think Hela was even that effective because she azula won in the end like at the end of season two she won it was kind of her father's fault that shit went south completely yeah you know at first they had the very clear stereotypes or association the elemental associations with fire being a very masculine energy and water being very receptive emotional energy and they kind of kept that through and through but with the introduction of azula like, they spun that around. Mm -hmm. Like, women are also capable of that level of violence. Yeah. And that level of, like, ferocity. Yeah, ferocity. And that level of leadership. And we even see with her partners, May and Tylee, that they're also extremely effective in their own way. Something that Tylee brings to the table is feminine culture. You know, she's very feminine. She likes to do acrobatics and she loves her makeup. 
but she's still very effective and it's not really a hindrance on her because people often see that being feminine hinders your abilities like you can't do something masculine because you're so feminine but tylee isn't like that she gets her shit done and still can looks good and still looks good doing it and that's something that it's like it shows that in a positive light that she can mm-hmm. still do everything that she wants to do in a crop top. In a crop top, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> also, it's important to notice that we have a wide range of female characters with a wide range of characteristics. Katara being like a leader who's very passionate, who's very motherly, as they say, to Toph, who's very rugged and tough, yeah. and like doesn't give a damn what anyone says to zula who's just ruthless and effective and scary Uh, and that's important too because girls often don't have many women to look up to or if they do they're in a gender role and now we have a whole cast of female characters of none of which really fall into a typical yeah gender role none of them are one note like tar easily could have fallen into a one note character yeah where she's constantly taking care of people or trying to de-escalate violent situations or situations that could get violent. But her episode with Zuko, where she actively (laughs) seeks out revenge Mm -hmm. and uses bloodbending, it really subverts the elemental association of water with, like, passiveness and receptivity to action and ferocity and that fire... Yeah, even with Toph, we see that, you know, she's she's rugged and tough on the outside, but she's still softer in the inside, especially when we see her opening it up about how she feels about her parents and how she doesn't like to be taken care of and coddled and she wants to do yeah. things on her own. But then with the, uh, the Blind Bandit episode, I think it's, uh, no, the Runaway episode, when she finally opens up and says, you know, Katara, when she's butting head with Katara and she says, well, she's motherly. But, like, it's important that we have that, too. And we see that side of Toph. Yeah. And even with Azula, we see a side where she's bred to be a killing, effective machine. And we see how that affects a woman. Or, I shouldn't say a woman, but affects anyone. And how she can't connect with people her age, as we see in the Ember Island episode. Ember That's Island. a great episode. Yeah. We see more into Zula and how she's awkward and she doesn't know how to make friends, which isn't we don't get to see until Birds of Prey in a more comedic manner <laughs> when Huntress just doesn't know how to talk to people or hang out with people because she was trained to be an assassin her entire yeah. life, which is like what would really happen. Yeah. And then we see Azula break because she never got compassion. She never got to express passion because her father made her this machine that he wanted to do to replace Zuko and replace him later on. And she lost the passion of her mom, which she desperately wishes she had, as we saw. And even with May in the Ember Island episode, that was a great episode for rounding out our antagonist. Mm-hmm. And you could see her as this emotional, iconic goth girl, but she was raised in an environment where nobody really cared about what she had to say or her emotions Mm -hmm. exactly and i think like the only one note character we could point to would be cabbage man (laughs) 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 um (laughs) 
I would say from Cabbage Man, <laughs> I was going to say one note character would probably be like, I mean, obviously there's Ozai, who is just evil and that's it. And he has no other intention than world domination being a complete asshole. But it would be also like Suki in the sense that she's kind of there as a badass woman who just helps the Avatar crew here and there. Um, even then, she's not catty yeah and she's very independent too extremely independent to the point where one she leads her own crew of kiyoshi warriors two when they get separated on the final episode when they get separated on the war balloons she like takes down her own war balloon while sokka and toph are trying to take down one and then she comes and saves sokka and toph too everyone's got their own strengths yeah strengths and that's where the show shines i mean we could we talk about that with all the female characters, but with the male characters too, they are definitely all very very deep. And I think that even a male character being Aang is even mm-hmm. more feminist because he's not a vicious like buff angry boy or yeah. however you want to say. He's pacifist. He's kind. He's loving. He wants to have fun. He's not afraid to talk about his emotions yeah. or what he's feeling. He embraces them. Exactly. And in the first episode of the third season, when he is holding back his emotions because he's like, I just need to do this because I failed. He breaks down and he learns that it's, it's important to talk to your friends and it's important to talk to people. And I think that's, again, was a conscious decision for young boys watching this to see that it's okay to open up and let your frustration, your anger go. Because a lot of boys are are supposed to learn that's not okay. And that you're supposed to just tough it out and go through, which is what he tried and he failed. Yeah. And he learned that it's you got to open up. And that's mm-hmm. with Zuko too, yeah. where he is has this extremely toxic masculinity dad who forces him to act a certain way and be a certain way. And when he, sh- like, when he sh- expresses compassion and emotions for the little ducklings in that flashback scene, he's, like, punished for it. Uh, and he's constantly punished for being a compassionate man. And then finally we see him break down and beg for forgiveness for Iroh. And we see that all that emotion just flush out of him. And we see even before then when he's, like, trying to learn how to revert back lightning bending we see more emotion in him and we see how much men are able to express emotion in yeah. the show and we, of course with iroh too of course and tales of bossing say yeah definitely and iroh's never was never at once a toxic had ever like had toxic masculinity because he's always want and he's so in tune with his emotions and he's in tune with what he wants and how he wants to help people yeah. versus Ozai, who's just conquer and destroy and forget about everyone else. And everything he values now versus everything he left behind. Everything he left behind was a product of toxic masculin- masculinity. His family, mm-hmm. his titles, you could argue his honor meant nothing to him because... It was based on violence mm-hmm. and genocide, not just of the air nomads, but of his ancestors, the dragons. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they even say he didn't kill the last dragon. He lied and then he helped hide the last dragon. 
which is that's i mean i would love to see like iroh's development from becoming like oh the son of the flame flame emperor this is not fire emblem the the son (laughs) of the fire lord to becoming a compassionate uncle who loves his nephew so dearly and like all he wants is his tea Tea shop shop. (laughs) that's all we can (laughs) that's all any of us could ask for yeah and i think that's where that's all like the beauty in a show is just it's a representation of people it's a representation of cultures it's a representation of women it's a representation of men it is just all very positive and it's like there's not a character i can look at i mean i'm sure if i really dove into it there's flaws in each character but there's not we're a not nitpicking. we're not nitpicking for a kid's show. for a kid's show and we're also i'm not i'm pointing to saying i'm saying that there's not a character that has toxic traits of like racism or toxic traits of masculinity or toxic traits of anything at least in our protagonist which is obviously who we're supposed to look up to and going off that even ing's relationship with katara is to me it's amazing to see Mm -hmm. for it being a kid's show because clearly they have chemistry as children but it's like puppy love Mm -hmm. but there's none of this they're very they're both very open about their feelings. There's none of this teasing each other yeah. or being intentionally harmful towards one another and adults passing it off as, oh, well, They'll grow he just up likes or... you. Boys will be boys. There's yeah. none of that. Exactly. They've always been emotionally invested in each other. Yeah. And that's how young boys should interact with young girls. Yes, that's exactly. That's perfect way of saying it's just how they've been kind to each other they love each other and it's a love where they take care of each other and they want to help each other grow and that's the the whole message of the show yeah i think i just think that's the beauty of the show and that's why we wanted to talk about it and that's a much uh, enough time to wrap things up too i know there's a couple subjects we wanted to touch on as well but I just wanted to leave on a positive note of just talking about how these characters interact with each other. And as you said, how Katara and Aang love yeah. each other. Their dream team. Yeah. Not just Aang and Katara, but Team Avatar. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, this show means so much to people as we see. And it continu- it will it will continue to mean a lot to people because of the messages it's sent, because of the representation it has because of everything it will be a timeless show yeah and it will be for everyone too i love it so much yeah i'm getting emotional thinking about <laughs> iroh and tara's relationship every i think i always get emotional with iroh but yeah i think i think that's about it for this episode i appreciate whoever's listened to this and thank you so much especially if you're the first viewers assuming we get more than 100 people in like five years time (laughs) it's our first episode so bear with us yes and that's all we have to say for this next episode we're debating whether we want to do on carol on tuesday which is an anime based about music in the modern times it's sci-fi it's like a modern sci-fi musical yeah and it's fantastic it's amazing it's either that or we will be covering legend of korra which is a sequel to avatar and there's a lot of stuff to be talk talk about that too yes 
there's a lot of watching I need to do yeah, before for... we cover Legend uh, of Korra. So we'll see which one comes out first. Uh, either way, we will probably get both of those episodes. And yeah, thank you everyone, and tune in if thank you like you. it. We're thank you. Really excited to start making more content. Yeah, and uh, I should say that if if anyone listening has ideas of what we should cover, feel free to message me or email me if I put an email or contact information, either me or Cecilia, and we'll talk about it and see if we can discuss it. There's so much we want to discuss. Like we said, we're covering multiple forms of media, not just TV shows. So we're looking at books. I know we want to talk about albums. Albums. We want to talk about musicians. Video games. Video games. I know we we're looking at talking about Fire Emblem. I would love to read. Chi- I mean, I'd love to talk about Children of Blood and Bone, but someone has to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for calling me out. You're welcome. And yeah, there's a lot we're gonna cover. A lot we hope to cover. And yeah, I guess let's hope for the best. And I just want to throw out that we're a couple. So <laughs> if you're getting those vibes, you are, your instincts are correct. <laughs> yes, there's no, you can't ship us because we've already been shipped. So. <laughs> Thank you. And let's look forward to the next one. Thank you. Thank you.